Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Subjects of Captivity, Personhood Rights, and Non-Human Animals. Our opening song is A Non-Animal by Andrew Byrd, off of the 2009 release Noble Beast. In February 2018, after the Non-Human Rights Project filed a motion for permission to appeal to the New York Court of Appeals in the cases of captive chimpanzees Tommy and Kiko, a group of philosophers submitted an amicus curiae brief in support of the NHRP's efforts to secure recognition of their clients' legal personhood and rights. An amicus curiae assists a court by offering information, expertise, or insight that has a bearing on the issues in a case. Whether to consider the brief is at the discretion of the court. One judge on this, New York's highest court, favorably referenced the philosopher's brief in an opinion seen as a historic mark of progress in the fight for non-human rights, with the judge concluding, for the first time anywhere in the U.S., that, quote, there is no doubt that a chimpanzee is not merely a thing, unquote. With us today to discuss personhood and other political rights for non-human animals is Jeff Sibo, Clinical Associate Professor of Environmental Studies, Affiliated Professor of Bioethics, Medical Ethics, and Philosophy, and Director of the Animal Studies MA program at New York University. His research focuses on bioethics, animal ethics, and environmental ethics. He has co-authored two books, Chimpanzee Rights and Food, Animals, and the Environment. This is a return visit to Interchange for Jeff Sebo, who joined us in January of 2020 for our show Beasts Burdens on Climate Change and Non-Human Animals. In that show, it was made plain how the human animal, Homo sapiens, is simply a catastrophe considered from the perspective of the non-human animal. We breed and kill at least 100 billion animals per year for food and at least 115 million per year for research. Fishing kills one to three trillion animals per year. Deforestation destroys animal habitats and on and on it goes. A change in the legal status of non-human animals from thing to person or even perhaps to some new third category might be the way humans begin to address their role as the great exterminator of living beings on the planet. But we begin with some happy news. Last week, the New York Court of Appeals, one of the most influential state courts in the United States, agreed to hear the habeas corpus case of Happy the Elephant, an autonomous and cognitively complex non-human animal who has been imprisoned at the Bronx Zoo for over four decades. This marks the first time in history that the highest court of any English-speaking jurisdiction will hear a habeas corpus case brought on behalf of someone other than a human being. And now, subjects of captivity on Interchange on WFHP. Well, 
So you you sent me the link to the uh, it was the Non Human Rights Project blog about the New York Court of Appeals agreeing to hear uh, what they what's called an elephant's rights case. This is more than an elephant rights case, I assume. But um, can you tell us a little bit about that that particular case? Yeah, this is a, a case where the Non-Human Rights Project is advocating on behalf of Happy the Elephant, who has lived for more than 40 years, I think, at the Bronx Zoo, and has lived for, I think, about the past 17 years or so alone at the Bronx Zoo. She used to have an elephant companion, but then that companion died in, in early in this new century. And the Non-Human Rights Project is appealing to the courts to uh, agree with them that Happy has a right to bodily liberty and and for that reason should be transferred to a sanctuary where she can have a better life. And this argument, like other non-human rights arguments so far, was rejected by a lower court and the non-human rights project appealed to the New York Court of Appeals, which is the highest court in this particular jurisdiction. And whereas the New York Court of Appeals had denied previous appeals regarding non-human rights, they accepted this appeal. So they will hear this case. And this is the first time that the highest court in an English-speaking jurisdiction will hear a non-human rights case. Uh, So if you don't mind, uh, Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about the Non-Human Rights Project? Yeah. So the Non-Human Rights Project is an organization that uh, basically employs lawyers who are working not only through the courts, but also other ways through legislation and education to advance the cause of non-human personhood and non-human rights. Basically, they want to persuade political and legal bodies to recognize non-human animals as legal subjects. And in our current legal system, every being can either be a person with the capacity for rights or an object without the capacity for rights. You can either be a person or an object. There is no middle ground, no in between, no third category. So in the context of our current system, to advance legal subjecthood for non-human animals means advancing legal personhood for non-human animals. So the Non-Human Rights Project has been arguing that that non-human animals, for example, captive chimpanzees and elephants, but other animals too, uh, qualify, satisfy the criteria for legal personhood and legal rights within the context of our existing system. So I guess we need to sort of figure out some of these terms, right? So um, you've already you've already sort of poked the hornet's nest, I suppose, with person and thing or person and object. Mm. And you, you know, you do point to the the real issue here is that there's there are no other options, right? You got to be a a person or you're an object and an object is often something that's used <laughs> for the most part, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, a resource, a, a piece of property, et cetera, things like that. So exactly. in this situation in particular, and we'll go into, you know, the work that you've done with this project as well, uh, as regards chimpanzees, but here in this case, the court of appeals agreed to hear the habeas corpus case on the elephant client happy, an autonomous and cognitively complex non-human animal who's been imprisoned at the Bronx Zoo, as you said, for over four decades. First, what is habeas corpus? So habeas corpus is is basically a right that requires you to justify holding someone in captivity. And, and so if somebody is being held in captivity, there can be a lawsuit brought on their behalf, and then the person holding them is going to have to justify why they are holding them in captivity to the court. And in this case, it would be used so that the Bronx Zoo would have to justify why they were holding Happy in captivity 
And then if that justification failed, there would be grounds to move happy to better conditions, for example, in a sanctuary designed specifically for the elephant's well-being. Hmm. Uh, so, so habeas corpus has historically been one of the, the best ways to persuade the courts to legally recognize the, the personhood status of individuals who were previously not recognized by, by the legal system. Hmm. And this literally means free the body, is that right? I believe so, but yeah. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> You're not a Latin scholar either, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is philosopher Jeff Sebo, and our show is Subjects of Captivity, about the legal status of non-human animals. Are they subjects or objects, persons or things? And currently, those are the only options available in the legal system. You're either a person, and so have attendant basic and legal rights, or you're a thing to be used and abused and wasted and eradicated by those deemed persons. So the point then is to say, we think there's an unlawful detention here, and so the writ Mm -hmm. says we're going to examine if this is an unlawful detention or not. Um, that is my understanding. Okay, yeah. yeah. And and this actually is one of the, you know, I guess one of the most important things in our legal system, the ability to apply for this writ um, and be recognized by the court to be, I guess, uh, freed from detention or to be recognized, as you say, as a, a person who has particular rights in our past in the U.S. and other countries as well. Certain people are not considered persons in law also. Um, mm-hmm. Formerly enslaved people would not have counted as persons. Uh, women would not have counted as persons, children uh, as well. So these things are important, and this is an important uh, legal uh, remedy if you can make it happen. That's right. Okay. The next thing that, that I read there is autonomous and cognitively complex non-human animal. So happy as an elephant. And Mm -hmm. the idea here is to show that the elephant has particular qualities that the court should recognize that would make the elephant a person. Uh, So not a human, which is part of the part of the confusion here, I think, for a lot of a lot of people. I think you're right to point out that some people are going to trip over distinguishing human and person because in everyday language, we use these words interchangeably in a lot of contexts. So we we might use person to refer to a human and, and vice versa. And for that reason, I think a lot of people find it strange to suggest that non-humans can be persons mm-hmm. because that goes against our ordinary way of talking. And, and so the first thing to really emphasize is that that is not what person means under the law. What person means under the law Uh, This is not a biological concept that refers to membership in a particular species. This is instead a moral and legal concept that refers to an individual who can hold moral and legal rights. When you call somebody a person under the law, you are not saying that they are a member of the species Homo sapiens. You are instead saying that they are the kind of being who can hold moral and legal rights. And so if you want to deny that non-human animals can be persons, you have to provide an argument that shows why non-human animals cannot be the kinds of beings who can hold moral and legal rights. So, so that is the first point, just to make as clearly mm-hmm. as possible. This is this is a moral and legal concept. And the two terms here, autonomous and cognitively complex. What is an autonomous being in this situation? Courts, judges, philosophers have at various points linked personhood with autonomy. And, and this is really complicated because I believe and other people believe 
that autonomy should not actually be seen as necessary for personhood. Mm -hmm. You should be able to be a person with moral and legal rights that are appropriate given your interests and needs and vulnerabilities, as long as you are a subject at all, as long as you have consciousness and emotionality and can feel pleasure and pain and can have desires and preferences. Uh, my view is that that itself should be enough for personhood and that a lot of what people have said about personhood is consistent with that. At various points, some people have attempted to link personhood and autonomy. And uh, for that reason, the Non-Human Rights Project emphasizes that even if you think autonomy in a certain sense is necessary for personhood, even if you you believe that the bar should be that high, many non-human animals, including these chimpanzees and elephants, satisfy that criterion. Mm. And, and autonomy in this sense is basically just the ability to set and pursue goals and, in an intelligent manner. If you are able to um, act intentionally, if you are able to, to perform actions that make sense in light of your beliefs and desires and solve problems and, and act creatively, if, if you have those kinds of powers, then you have autonomy in the relevant sense. And, and that does not mean that you need to have the ability to think about your reasons or form 40-year-long plans about right. how to live your life or, or anything like that. It just means that, that you have the ability to navigate your environment in a thoughtful and intelligent manner. And, and when you understand the autonomy in, in that sense, it's clear that many non-human animals, not just elephants and chimpanzees, but many non-human animals need that bar. To Bombay, a traveling circus came. They brought an intelligent elephant and Ellie was her name. One dark night, she slipped her iron chain and off she ran to Hindustan and was never seen again. It's time for a break. This is Nellie the Elephant, released in October 1956. It was recorded by English child actress Mandy Miller and produced by the fifth Beatle, George Martin. Stay with us for more on personhood and non-human animals when Interchange returns. Off she went with a trumpety trump, 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 trump. The head of the herd was calling far, far away. They met one night in their silver light on the road to Mandalay. So Nelly the elephant packed her trunk and said goodbye to the circus. Off she went with a trumpety trump, 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 trump. circus band when Nellie was leading the big parade she looked so proud and grand no more tricks for Nellie to perform they taught her how to take a bow when she took the crowd by storm Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Subjects of Captivity with philosopher and animal rights activist Jeff Sebo. In this segment, we discuss why a non-human animal should be considered a legal person, such as the capacity for self-awareness. How can we know that Happy the Elephant is self-aware? We'll find out. So, Nelly- 
gave the elephant back to trunk and said goodbye to the circus. Off she went with a trumpety trump, 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 trump. Okay, so uh, autonomy is a high bar in 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 some situations, or you're I think you're suggesting it's a rather high bar, and it's not necessary to be considered a person. Um, and this is just particularly what non-human rights project has has suggested is uh, the the elephants in particular, and again chimpanzees as well, uh, and other animals actually are autonomous, have autonomy, and even if that bar is that high these animals also reach it. And you're suggesting that there are other things that would make um, a non-human animal uh, a legal person. That's exactly right. Okay. The, the argument is basically, even if you think autonomy is necessary, we can still show you that chimpanzees and elephants and other animals meet that bar. Okay. But, but we can make that argument without assuming that autonomy is in fact necessary because okay. we have good reason to think that we should in fact accept a different standard than that. Okay. As well as the next thing being cognitively complex, and you've already suggested that, right? If, if, some, uh, if a being is autonomous, they have, I assume, cognitive complexity. Um, and you made a little joke there about, about plans, which I like, you know, the idea of the elephant uh, being asked to present their five-year life plan or their 10-year goals <laughs> to right. be autonomous. Uh, but one of the things that the uh, non-human rights project points out in a little bit of their backstory for Happy is that she um, passed a mirror self-recognition test as an indicator of self-awareness. Can you describe that a bit? So the mirror self-recognition test has, has long been treated as one of the best sources of evidence that non-human animals, or for that matter, human children, uh, and, and anyone else has self-awareness and self-awareness is thought to be important for all sorts of reasons. If you have self-awareness, then you can also have certain kinds of social awareness and you might be able to think about your thoughts and, and have a conception of yourself and, and make plans about what your life should be like and, and these sorts of things. Um, so so self-awareness is, is thought to be important for those reasons. And the mere self-recognition test is an important test for self-awareness. There, there are variations of it, but a typical version of it is the, the researcher will put a, a, a certain kind of mark on an animal, like a mark on their face, and then put the animal in front of a mirror and see how the animal behaves in, in front of the mirror. And if the animal notices the mark and in various ways uh, touches or, or investigates the part of their body where they see the mark, then people treat that as evidence that they realize that the individual in the reflection is them and that the mark in the mirror is in fact a mark on their own body. To pass the mirror self-recognition test, to, to behave in a way that shows that you do recognize that individual as yourself, that is very good evidence that you are self-aware in a certain sense of the term. And, and, and that does give us insight into what your inner mental life might be like and what your interests and needs and vulnerabilities might be. But it's important to note also that failing the mirror self-recognition test is not necessarily good evidence that you lack self-awareness mm -hmm. because many animals just might not be like primarily visual creatures or might not care very much if there's a mark on their face, right. might not be interested in investigating that or might have a different kind of self-awareness like, like bodily or social forms of self-awareness that um, just are different from human self-awareness in various ways. So, so the fact that happy 
is distinctive for passing the mere self-recognition test shouldn't lead us to believe that ha- happy is the only elephant or, or one of the only animals who who has self-awareness. Mm, that was that's a good point. It's actually I was going to say it's one of the points that Thalia Field makes in her book Personhood. You know, just mm. maybe that day the, the animal was interested in something else, right? Right. Exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. these, these tests are uh, somewhat arbitrary also in in how we mm-hmm. how we interpret them. And we've heard a lot of stories about uh, non-human animals having very complex lives, right? Complex relationships, social relationships. Uh, They care about their dead. They care about, you know, their personal relationships. I use the word person, right? Their personal relationships Mm -hmm. with their their friends, their mates, etc. These are not strange things to most of us, right? Anybody who's been watching animals on television, you know, animal programs on television for I don't know how long have been uh, sort of exposed to this idea that uh, so many non-human animals have lives that we can like enter into almost or imagine mm-hmm. imagine them being like humans in some ways, even though that's a, mm-hmm. an unfortunate category that we have to use here because we're the ones making the rules. Um, right. But it seems clear that there are a lot of things that we believe in as a species that other animals feel the same way about in, uh, in, some, mm-hmm. in some manner. Yeah, there, there are a lot of continuities between human and non-human animals that reveal that they possess many of the same properties and relations that that we find valuable in ourselves. Right, right. One thing to to be again clear on here, I think, in terms of the legal case, right, is is the is the suggestion here that Happy, who we might think of as a standard elephant for the United States, right, a a a resident in a zoo, is actually a prisoner. I yeah, mean, the, the yeah. non-human rights project uses that language. They right. describe happy as imprisoned at the right. Bronx Zoo. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is philosopher Jeff Sebo, and our show is Subjects of Captivity, about the legal status of non-human animals. Are they subjects or objects, persons or things? And currently, those are the only options available in the legal system. You're either a person and so have attendant basic and legal rights, or you're a thing to be used and abused and wasted and eradicated by those deemed persons. If it's decided tomorrow that all non-human animals in uh, cages, in zoos, etc., need to be free, um, there is obviously the next step of what does that mean, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> What of happens course, next, of course, right? Yeah. I, I think those questions are important to ask, and you know we would have to answer them differently for different animals. And and I think that part of the reason why courts have, in practice, been reluctant to decide in favor of the non-human rights project is the novel nature of the cases and mm-hmm. and deeply entrenched speciesist views about personhood and rights. But I think another part of the reason is is that they see what might happen next. They see what questions this might raise and how this argument might extend. And and all of a sudden, you have to be asking which animals have the right to bodily liberty and what other rights might they have? And how will our treatment of these animals have to change, not only in zoos and aquariums, but also in food and research and so on? Mm -hmm. Um, And those are difficult questions to answer. And I, I can absolutely appreciate why a judge might be reluctant to make a decision that would raise those questions that, that would lead us down that road. But but I think the really important point to emphasize is that the case in front of this particular court is going to be about this particular elephant and what this elephant's situation is and whether this elephant is rightly being held in this particular state of captivity and whether there is a better life available to this elephant that we can provide her. 
whether the court wants to make a decision that is narrower in scope or wide in scope that that would uh, apply relatively narrowly to this elephant or relatively widely to other captive animals uh, the the primary question here is is what should happen for this elephant given what humanity has done to her thinking about the implications is of course good and 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 you want to be thinking about that but fear of the implication should not lead you to deny what is obvious, which is that this animal is not a thing. Right. Uh, and, and this animal is a being who is capable of legal and, and political protections. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Jeff, you you did work with the Non-Human Rights Project on behalf of chimpanzees. And this was a subject of a 2016 documentary film called Unlocking the Cage. This particular case, um, was it Tommy and Kiko eventually are, are the chimps that get their day in court or don't get their day in court, actually? Um, that almost got a yeah, day in court. Right, yeah, right, right, yeah. Right. We joined the work after that documentary was, was mm-hmm. made, but, but yeah. Yeah, we we I, I worked with a, a group of seventeen philosophers who wrote a, a an amicus brief, a, a friend of the court brief, on behalf of uh, Kiko and Tommy, two chimpanzees who are being held uh, in isolation in New York State. And the Non-Human Rights Project was once again arguing that these chimpanzees have a right to bodily liberty, and the court should recognize that and assist them in being relocated to sanctuaries. And once again, the lower courts denied that petition. And so the Non-Human Rights Project brought the case to the New York Court of Appeals. And we participated in that effort by writing a philosopher's brief, basically explaining why uh, chimpanzees are the kinds of beings who can count as persons and count as rights holders, and why the lower courts had been using either arbitrary or inconsistent conceptions of personhood when they were denying that that chimpanzees can be persons or have rights. We presented that argument to the court, and unfortunately, they uh, did not decide to hear the case. Now, now importantly, I think they, they decide not to hear something like 95% of the cases right. that, that are brought to them. So it doesn't necessarily mean much that they don't decide to hear any particular case. But but what was noteworthy about that case was, was that one judge in particular, Judge Fahey, published an opinion, I think about a seven-page opinion, that affirmed many of the arguments that the Non-Human Rights Project and our team of philosophers were making, uh, and, and in particular, that affirmed that the currently accepted legal status of these chimpanzees as things under the law is an injustice that the courts are going to need to address. And, and this particular opinion ended by saying whether or not chimpanzees are the kinds of beings who can be persons, they are not the kinds of beings who are merely things. And, and so even though, uh, unfortunately, the Non-Human Rights Project failed to get a hearing for Kiko and Tommy from the New York Court of Appeals, we did see that opinion as a positive sign that some members of this court see this as a legitimate issue and that there might be opportunity for further progress later on. And, and this is the same court that is now going to be hearing uh, the case of Happy the Elephant. So, so the Non-Human Rights Project will now be bringing, once again, roughly the same kind of argument, this time on behalf of a captive elephant, to this court. And I, I think this is a really good sign that this issue is becoming increasingly legitimized. And I'm hopeful that the court will decide Whatever they decide about the particulars, that they'll decide that an elephant is the kind of being who who can be recognized as having legal standing in a courtroom. Zoom, zoom, who's a monkey to the moon? 
It's time for another break. This is Monkey to the Moon by The Coral, off of the 2008 release Mysteries and Rarities. More with philosopher and ethicist Jeff Sebo on the claims to personhood made on behalf of non-human animals when Interchange returns. Watch that event Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is Jeff Sebo, co-author of the book Chimpanzee Rights, The Philosopher's Brief, published by Rutledge. In what follows, Sebo lays out some of the ways that humans and non-human animals are very much alike as beings, with self-directed ideas about how to live our lives. Let's talk a little bit about the book that you you and your philosopher friends, uh, the 17, was it 17 initially? I think thir- <laughs> yeah, 13 17 finally. 17 initially and, and 13 stuck around for the book. 13 for the book. The book is Chimpanzee Writes, The Philosopher's Brief. Um, so what you do in that book is, is set out to really show why the arguments against or, you know, why the court failed or made a bad argument to deny the writ of habeas corpus. Not so mm-hmm. much, uh, even though you're making, you're making claims about the uh, chimpanzees being persons, as much as anything else, you're showing uh, also how inconsistent the thinking was <laughs> of the court uh, right. and how they failed uh, even in their own terms to show that Kiko and Tommy are not persons. So that, that I like that part of it a lot. Let's try to walk through a few of these things about how we decide whether uh, a being is a person or not. Um, so we, I think you mentioned already speciesism and maybe essentialism at the same time. Um, but, you know, why is it wrong to think that only humans are persons? Uh, what, what, why is that a problem? Well, you could you could think that only humans are persons for different reasons. One one might be that you think only humans have a certain kind of capacity that matters for some reason, like language or, or reason or the ability to suffer. And and if if you think only humans are persons for that reason, because only humans have a certain kind of special capacity, then you actually accept a different kind of view, a capacities based view. And and so we can talk about that separately. Mm-hmm. But but the other reason you might think that only humans can be persons is is that you think that membership in the species Homo sapien is itself the basis for personhood and rights. And the the reason we reject that argument is that that argument is completely arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Species membership 
is just one of many taxonomic categories that biologists use to explain and predict and control particular kinds of natural phenomena. We have species and genus and families and orders and right. all of those things. And in each case, this is an abstract concept that biologists came up with in order to sort beings into particular categories for explanatory purposes. But but it has no intrinsic moral or, or legal or political significance. And in fact, species are not really well-suited for that kind of significance because species, first of all, change over time. Mm -hmm. Second of all, there are a lot of similarities across species, a lot of variation within species. And I think that when we reflect on why we have uh, personhood and rights, the basis for our own personhood and rights, if somebody asked, what is it about you that makes you someone I should respect or have compassion for? Um, the answer would not be how I happen to be classified in a biology textbook, that I'm the kind of being who can have happiness and suffering and emotionality and bonds of care and interdependence. So, so these are the kinds of features of my life that that determine uh, my my moral and political status, not what species or genus I happen to be a member of. There, there are people who think that the right solution to this problem is not to say that non-humans can be persons, but rather to get rid of the binary between persons and things mm. and say that there could be this third middle ground category, like we can say there are persons, there are things, and then in the middle, there are sentient beings right. or, or legal beings of some kind. And non-human animals can occupy this brand new middle ground category. For example, Manisha Dekka uh, has just published a new book arguing not that animals should be persons, but rather that we should create this new status of a, a kind of legal being hmm. and recognize animals in, in this alternative status instead. Do you think it's easier, Jeff, to think about ways in which um, non-human animals and humans are um, are operating in the same in the same kind of uh, moral and intellectual or uh, intelligence space than it is to say what what's not proper? So instead of saying you know being essentialist is wrong, what can we say is is a proper way to imagine that non-human animals are persons? You mentioned capacities uh, already. Uh, obviously, that's a, a probably a, an easy way to think about it in terms of, you know, what are, what are the things that a person can do or can be shown to do that is uh, that makes them a person, right? Uh, right so right. Uh, um, let's go over that because it was interesting that there were two kinds of capacities listed in the book, right? One was clusters of capacities, which meant you didn't have to have all of these particular capacities to be considered a person's, but some of them. And mm -hmm. another way was to to say, well, you need to have all these capacities to be mm -hmm. a person. Mm -hmm. So maybe go over those because those seem easy to understand. Many people do accept capacities-based views for moral and legal and political standing. And, and we can debate whether we should. For example, some people accept certain kinds of social or relational or community views instead, where being a person is a matter of being embedded in certain types of social relationships. And we might talk about that in a bit. Mm -hmm. But if you if you do accept a capacities-based view, the, the basic idea is that um, to be a person is to have a certain kind of capacity that uh, gives you moral, legal, political standing. And then the question is, what capacity is that and why? And some people have accepted a, a fairly demanding standard, like you have to have language and reason of a particular type, or you have to have this entire cluster of capacities, like all of them, as, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that view is problematic, first of all, is that there's not a really good basis for it. For example, even if I lack uh, abstract language and reason, 
I can still have some of the capacities that I mentioned before. Like I, I can be the kind of being who is capable of feeling pleasure and pain and happiness and suffering and having desires and preferences. And I can have emotionality and certain types of social bonds with others that makes me vulnerable and dependent in, in various ways. And intuitively, that should be enough for me to be someone who matters and, and whose interest should be taken into account when people are making decisions about how to treat me. The, the mere fact that I don't have abstract language and reason and I can't sign contracts or, or as I was saying before, make a 40-year life plan, mm-hmm. um, that might change what I can do and what interests I have, but it doesn't change the fact that I have interests and that I should be taken into account. So, so the very demanding standards are not very plausible for that reason. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is philosopher Jeff Sebo, and our show is Subjects of Captivity, about the legal status of non-human animals. Are they subjects or objects, persons or things? And currently, those are the only options available in the legal system. You're either a person, and so have attendant basic and legal rights, or you're a thing to be used and abused and wasted and eradicated by those deemed persons. There's another troubling feature of them, which that, at least on the face of it, they would exclude many humans right. who, who lack advanced language and reason or, or who lack all of the capacities in this, in this cluster. And, and that kind of view is a non-starter, is completely incompatible with modern views about human rights and justice. We, right. we need a conception of personhood that acknowledges, that recognizes the, the personhood of all humans uh, independently of, of whether we all have advanced language and reason or, or whether we have them at any particular time. Right. Uh, so so it's, it's implausible for, for those reasons. But then if you accept the other kind of capacities-based view, if you say, okay, fine, uh, maybe you don't need advanced language and reason, maybe you don't need all of the capacities on this list, um, maybe it's sufficient just to have something like consciousness, emotionality, uh, bonds of care and interdependence. Uh, may, maybe that's enough for you to count as a person and then whether you have the other capacities, that just helps us figure out what your interests and needs and vulnerabilities are so we know how to treat you. Mm-hmm. If that's your view, that I think is much more plausible, but that view is completely consistent with the idea that many non-humans can be persons right. because many non-humans clearly do have those capacities. So, so you're essentially stuck in a situation where you either accept a very demanding, implausible, and ableist and ageist conception of, of personhood or you accept a much more plausible anti-ageist, anti-ableist conception of personhood, but that one is going to be anti-speciesist as well. Right, right, right. As far as I can tell, it sticks on the idea that most people believe humans matter most. And mm-hmm. arguments are about humans having particular hierarchical value, you know, the top of the top of the heap value. Mm-hmm. And so uh, most people, I would think, would argue, well, an animal's not, or a non-human animal is not a human, right? And so that's why they don't get to participate in our legal system, which is for humans. However, you know, part, a, a large part of the legal system is protecting other things. And I use mm-hmm. the word things, of course, and there's obviously the <laughs> issue of being a thinking thing. I think that was a John Locke quote of some kind. You have to counter that 
speciesism as much as anything else. And a lot of the ideas about community membership, social community, uh, which all of us can kind of understand in terms of our, our pets, probably, right? This Our pet is a member of our community. And so that that's how we bring them into sort of the human idea of community. How do they work within our own community? But a big part of this is that non-human mm-hmm. animals have their own social communities, and mm-hmm. they should be mm-hmm. afforded status also that isn't diminished by the fact that they're not humans. Those are great points. Uh, and, and I guess just a, a couple of initial thoughts about them. The first is that we can distinguish personhood from uh, political membership. Mm-hmm. So so personhood is a property that we all have no matter where we live, no matter what community or state we happen to belong to, right? Uh, we, we all just in virtue of being conscious, emotional beings who, who can be benefited and harmed, we all have personhood. And that gives us a certain basic set of rights, no matter where in the world we find ourselves, right? So so I might be a citizen of the United States, but I can travel to other countries and I still have my personhood rights. You know, I might not have a right to receive social security in any country I happen to visit, <laughs> but I but I at least have a right to not be detained for no good reason and, and so on. And so, so there are these universal personhood rights that you can have independently of, of what a state you happen to be a member of. So, so that's the first point to make. And and this conversation right now isn't about whether elephants should be regarded as citizens right. and have the full set of rights that are afforded to citizens uh, as members of our political society. Uh, this is just a much more basic conversation about whether they should be regarded as persons, as the kinds of beings who should have these basic, minimal, universal rights to not be interfered with or harmed necessarily no matter where they happen to find themselves. And so that's a lower bar to clear. You, you, can, you can accept that elephants are persons without necessarily accepting that they should also be citizens, right? right. Now, the, the second point to make is that even if you think that in general, we should regard humans as members of our human communities and animals as members of their own communities, right? And so our obligation to them is not to treat them as a fellow community member, but is rather to respect their sovereignty, like respect the uh, autonomy and independence of the community that they've constructed. That is a totally legitimate view. And in fact, some of my co-authors on the uh, amicus brief have written separately that we should think of things that way. But the important point in this case is that uh, these chimpanzees and this elephant have, through no fault of their own, been taken away from their chimpanzee and elephant communities, have been deprived of the opportunity to be a member of chimpanzee and elephant communities and have been forced to instead be a part of our human community, right? So the chimpanzees, for example, were like actors and and then retired and, and then their gift in retirement was to be in these bad conditions and a roadside in right. upstate New York. And And so even if we think that in general, we don't have an obligation to treat chimpanzees and elephants, any old chimpanzee or elephant, as a member of our communities with with rights as community members. Um, in, in those cases where we do take them away from, from their own communities and force them to be a part of our communities and shape them into beings who don't know any other way of being than to be part of our communities, in those cases, we actually are entangled with them in all of the ways that should be familiar to us as as uh, co-members of a, a political community. And, and, and so in those cases, we do have a responsibility to acknowledge the fact that we've placed them in this role and, and then to treat them as community members since that is what we have made them into being. It's 
time for a break. This is Reflection by The Thermals from the 2010 release Personal Life. When we return, we look at the real problem here, our industrial food system. Stay with us. This is Interchange on WFHB. In this final segment of Subjects of Captivity, we confront the problem that undergirds much of the opposition to calling non-human animals persons. Humans eat them, experiment on them, use them as labor, and, simply put, treat them as things for use and consumption. Beyond this, we take a reality check. What can we actually accomplish for non-human animals in a world where humans brutalize other humans in much the same way? If non-human animals have to pass particular tests of being a person or not, and they do, uh, an elephant, a, a cow, uh, a, uh, you know, any other species, uh, you know, a pig, a chicken, then the, the question is, you know, should you eat persons, right? Mm-hmm. The, and, um, you know, that's, that's a major economic question, even as much mm-hmm. as it is a cultural question here in, in this country in particular. But So you can see why one would be fighting against calling animals persons, non-human animal, animals persons, as much for those reasons, because you don't want to go down that particular path. Yeah, I, I, I really do think that that is what is giving people pause. But what that really reflects is that we are currently living in a fundamentally unjust society. Right. We're currently living in a society that is treating billions yeah, of, right, of, right, of right, individuals in a right. way that, that we would never treat them if, if we recognize their status as individuals who are capable of holding basic uh, legal and, and moral rights. And that, of course, is not a justification for maintaining the status quo, but it might be an explanation for why people are motivated to maintain the status quo, because right. they, they know that once we recognize that the status quo is unjust, then we have to figure out what to do about that. And, and the only reasonable answer to that question is going to be pursuing fundamental social, political, economic change. The sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can start the project of actually creating a a more inclusive and and just society for human and non-human animals. But as an explanation, I can appreciate why it would feel daunting to uh, 
be the person who is tasked with saying out loud that yes, an animal is the kind of being who, who can be a person where you know that that will raise the question, what about these other animals? And what about these other forms of treatment of animals? And, and that there might not be any good reason to accept that some animals can be persons, but other animals who also have these capacities and relationships can't be persons. So yes, I, I do think that that is part of why people are feeling the gravity of the moment and are unsure what to do about it. The first step is just recognizing that there is an injustice here and you don't have to have all, all of the answers. So for example, if I was a judge in this court, I, I would feel a little bit overwhelmed at, at the thought of making a decision that anticipates all of the further questions and answers all the further questions that will arise. But, but I think it can be okay to not necessarily be able to anticipate and answer all of these further questions to recognize that there are a lot of difficult questions that, that we're going to be facing moving forward. But to start from the simple place of saying as a legal official, they are not things. Uh, and, and I recognize that our legal status currently only recognizes persons and things, but they are not things. We can start with that simple truth. And, and then we can you know, patiently and carefully make our way through all of the difficult questions that are going to come up once we recognize that initial basic truth. It's interesting that, you know, we start with these particular uh, non-human animals like chimpanzees, elephants, whales, um, I think dolphins, cephalopods, which are uh, octopus and squid, that kind of thing, uh, as being animals perhaps that have moved, even though obviously whales and uh, dolphins and cephalopods and elephants are also hunted creatures. They're not industrially farmed creatures, not like, you know, certain fishes are. Right. And of course, again, we have enough uh, human interaction with those larger and more clearly complex species um, that, that it's not hard to push in that direction, you know, to say, look, these creatures, these beings definitely are living life in a way that they're aware that they're living, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That they're aware mm -hmm. of themselves and they're having the life that they're having and it means something to them and they can even communicate with humans, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. far more than humans communicate with them. But the question then becomes, as you say, how do we go down that road then for change, which recognizes that these beings, as much as anything else, feel, right? But yet, what does it mean to say that that is a person or to say that, yeah. that that chimpanzee must be let free? Because that means that we need to really free uh, all of them. <laughs> so. Yeah, this gets to a, a really difficult question, which, which I, I, I genuinely think is a difficult question. How aspirational should we be mm. when we advocate for changes to our social and political and economic system? Mm -hmm. Because on one hand, you, you might think that what the arguments support is ending our systems of exploitation and extermination of vulnerable sentient non-human animals who we are harming and killing unnecessarily in, in the trillions per year. Right. Uh, but then on the other hand, you recognize that we still live in a society that treats many of its human members right. uh, deeply unjustly. And even changing that is incredibly difficult and is probably always going to be a struggle. And there are significant limits to our knowledge and, and power and political will here. How, how much should we aspire to create a world where we treat animals better and how much should we resign ourselves to the reality that we are probably always going to treat many vulnerable beings badly and, and just try to reduce harms at the margins? Mm. And the main thing that I would say about that is it seems really important as a starting point to acknowledge our responsibilities and limitations in equal measure. We, we do have profound responsibilities to other human and non-human animals, both because we're they're, they're sentient beings and we're embedded in communities with them and we're supporting 
activities that have been deeply harmful and oppressive to many of them. And, and that gives us profound responsibilities to, to many individuals. But there are also limits on, on what we can know and what we can do and, and what we might be motivated to do. And that matters too. Uh, we, we, we need to be realistic and pragmatic. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is philosopher Jeff Sebo, and our show is Subjects of Captivity about the legal status of non-human animals. Are they subjects or objects, persons or things? And currently, those are the only options available in the legal system. You're either a person, and so have attendant basic and legal rights, or you're a thing to be used and abused and wasted and eradicated by those deemed persons. We can't let our responsibilities be a reason to deny our limitations, but we also can't let our limitations be a reason to deny our responsibilities. I think we just need to accept both of them and then try to do as much as we can and then hope that we surprise ourselves by being able to go farther than we initially thought we could go. And one thought that I see as a sign of hope is that we are often capable of more than we think that we are. We, we often think something is impossible and then we achieve it. And then we look back in a generation and realize that it was a lot easier than we thought. And I do think that as we get more plant-based meat options out there into the world and uh, animal-free alternative forms of, of research and, and these other replacements, the more that that happens and the more people engage in animal activism and advocacy and education, the more we're going to create the conditions where respecting animals and having compassion for animals is easier than it might currently seem. Grocery store meat isn't an animal anyway, right? It's a, a package of something you eat. Um, That's right, yeah. And, and so if this package can be created some other way, then perhaps people don't even, you know, think of it that way anymore and and, and do reflect on the, the sort of barbarity of the system that we had come to in the first place. But what does it mean to have rights in a world of human design in trying to be realistic about the human aspect of these situations. Um, You know, that's a hard one. We can say lots of things about human rights, civil rights, political rights, and yet we violate them with impunity. You had sent me or or recommended this this book by Alistair Cochran, Mm -hmm. Um, Should Animals Have Political Rights? He answers, I think, yes, in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's a a long walk through that that kind of thinking, right? What is a Mm -hmm. political right for an animal? Just to briefly interject there, part of why I like the, the Alistair Cochran book that I sent you is, mm-hmm. is that he emphasizes in that book how many different types of political and legal status count as political rights in one sense or another. So, for right. example, we, we can talk about legal personhood and whether non-human animals should be legal persons, but there are also questions about what kinds of animal welfare protections to create, uh, what kinds of regulations to create, what kinds of constitutional protections for animals to mm-hmm. create. Uh, and, and then, yeah, whether they can have personhood status and rights, whether they can have political membership and political rights, whether they can have in any sense democratic uh, representation and, and so on and so forth. And, right. and so this is a, a battle that can be fought on many fronts at once and a, a question that can be asked in many ways at once. And when you look out in the world, you realize that, that even while progress might be slow on some of these fronts like personhood, though we are you know, making some progress, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For, for example, just with our news this week. Right. Um, in, in other respects, people have made a surprising amount of progress. So, for example, um, non-human animals are recognized as sentient beings in, in many uh, legal jurisdictions now. Mexico City in, in 2018 
ratified a new constitution that labels animals sentient beings and says we have moral and legal responsibilities to them. People are, are adding welfare protections to laws all the time and banning particular harmful products like foie gras or fur. So if you think political rights is only a matter of personhood status and, and citizenship and democratic representation, we might still have a ways to go, but maybe we can get there. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it more expansively as just the collection of all of these things that we can do through through the law and politics, we can see that we've already made a, a lot of progress and, and that's cause for optimism. The point that I think uh, Cochrane makes throughout is that these things that we already have in place, and you mentioned a few things that seem like good things, um, again, and I think I pointed this out too many times already, is that there isn't a f- anything to force these issues usually. Um, right. And right. that's that's the that's the fact about most of our protectionist regulations, from mm-hmm. environmental regulations to any other thing. Uh, you've got to have enforcement of those things for it to matter. The, the rights on the books don't matter if nobody enforces them, right? Um, I did like the, I guess, the assertion that all these other things, you mentioned uh, animal welfare uh, regulations, which are almost always uh, worked around um, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, they, they don't really do anything because, again, there's no, there's no enforcement of them and they just have less status as laws, which is interesting also. Mm-hmm. Like, why does a constitutional right trump these regulations, that kind of thing? Right. You know? So I think yeah. that, yeah. So, so not only do you need to generate motivation to enforce animal welfare laws, but you also need to... Um, uh, create reforms to to your legal and political system so that enforcing these laws won't, in various ways, harm marginalized humans mm-hmm. or or humans in general. Uh, and and I think the the solution to that is not to like throw up our hands and say, well, it doesn't matter. We might as well not create these welfare laws or, or constitutional um, protections. The solution is instead to recognize that activism and advocacy and education are also necessary. Yeah. We we can't create positive change through new laws by itself. We also can't create positive change through meatless meat by itself. That has to happen in the context of a broader um, set of efforts that include activism and advocacy that changes hearts and minds and gets people to care about animals more so that there's political will to enforce these laws, but also the recognition that we need to enforce them compassionately mm-hmm. and in ways that treat humans well. It's right. it's just why these issues are all interconnected with each other and we need to be working on lots of different fronts at the same time. That's our show. We'll close with Caribou from the 1987 Pixies release, Come On Pilgrim. Thanks to Jeff Sebo for helping us think better about how the legal system can be said to trap us in a very narrow use of language, which allows human dominion over all the creatures on the planet, including other humans. Jeff Sebo is co-author most recently of the book Chimpanzee Rights, published by Rutledge. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.